0: Well, I'd invite you to turn with me to the gospel according to Mark one last time. This has been a long and tremendous study. I have enjoyed it. I hope you have. But now we're in Mark chapter 16, and this is the end of our studies in Mark's gospel. This morning, we're going to encounter a question that I only raised last week at the end of our study. The question is, what exactly is the end of Mark's gospel? (laughs) Do verses 9 through 20 actually belong in the Bible? This question has been asked. It's a very important question. And if not, is the gospel, or the Bible for that matter, actually reliable? This isn't the kind of study we typically deal with as we're working through the exposition of Scripture. So this is going to be a bit unique. However, this kind of a study, I hope you will understand, is preliminary. We could even say prerequisite to the exposition of Scripture. Because before we can truthfully exposit the Word of God, we need to know what God's Word is. Now fortunately, you don't have to know the biblical languages or delve deep into textual criticism to accurately understand the message that God has given us in Scripture, that's because our leather-bound copies of the Bible that have come down to us, translated in English, are indeed quite accurate. And I thank God for that. I hope you do. But more authoritative than our English translation because that's what I'm you know that's what we're looking at here in the English it's a translation is the Greek and Hebrew text that is behind our translation. Before I study, I sit down to exposit a passage. In Mark's Gospel, I translate it. The first thing I do is translate it from the Greek into English because I want to interact with that base text. And this morning, what we're going to do is interact some with this base text, the text upon which our English translation is based. So this is, like I said, going to be an unusual study, but I trust and I pray it will be helpful to you. Let's begin with prayer. Our Father, you alone have the words of eternal life, and you are the God of truth. So we are so thankful that you have preserved these ancient words for us, for our learning. We ask this morning that you would enable your servant to speak clearly and with power. We ask that you would give everyone listening the ability to correctly understand what it is you desire to tell them. Help them to understand what it is we're looking at. Protect our church, oh Lord, we ask, from the assaults of our culture, from the empty philosophy of this world that would seek to undermine the word of God. And we ask that this morning, what it is we discuss in and around your word would strengthen the faith of your people and what you have said. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, who you sent, amen. Before modern welding technology came into use, the metalworker's most important tool was the anvil. The anvil. The anvil is a cast-iron block of steel with a smooth surface. And any deformity on the surface of the anvil, and it would no longer be of use, since any deformity on the anvil would be transferred to the blacksmith's piece of work. And I share that because there's a poem that, as I was studying this message, there's a poem that came to mind. It's attributed to John Clifford, and it's about an anvil. Last eve, I paused beside the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so. Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought, the anvil of God's word, for ages skeptic blows have beat upon, yet though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammer's gone. No book in history has withstood more opposition and criticism than the Bible. It is no secret. I can't help but laugh when I see and hear of Muslims attempting to undermine the reliability of the Bible. For centuries, Muslims have attempted to cover up the history of the Quran. They've done their best to avoid the textual criticism, the sort of thing that has been laid against the Bible. And there is now textual research available, which is an embarrassment to Islam's long-standing claims about the Quran, Because the Qur'an is nothing like the Bible. No other alleged holy book is. No book is like this book. The Bible has withstood the hammers of every age. It withstood the fire and sword from the time of King Manasseh to the time of the Emperor Diocletian. They could not stamp out the word of God. The Roman papacy would later try to chain the Bible to the pulpit but to no avail. Nor could the Enlightenment rationalists destroy the Bible with all their sophistry. All of them have come and gone. And though this world has toppled many churches, many seminaries, the Bible remains. We hear the blows falling, but the anvil is unharmed, the hammer's gone. Now, given the nature of today's study, I want to begin by laying out a couple principles for our study. First, please remember that preliminary to all of the evidence that we discuss today in regards to the Bible is the pre-commitment of our own hearts. I'm sure you've noticed that two people, a Bible skeptic and a Bible believer, can go into the same debate, they can hear all the same evidence, and they can all leave strengthened in their own position. And that is because... All of our beliefs are filtered through our pre-commitments. And so by discussing evidence for Scripture's reliability, I'm not trying to argue anyone into God's kingdom. That doesn't happen. I'm not intending that you take this information and try to do that. That's not the intent of this study. The evidence that we share here is for those committed to Christ to see that our faith is indeed rational. And also, please don't overreact to what it is we're studying here. You know, the story of church history tells us that Christians tend to overreact to things just a bit. I don't think anybody here would ever do that, no. But when we study something like involving textual criticism, a study like this demands extra caution and maturity. Discussions like this are very important, but they demand our caution and maturity. Someone here may feel uncomfortable with discussing some of these points of controversy about the Bible. Maybe you feel it's better to leave some of this unsaid, to just pass over it. But please understand, I'm only taking time to deal with this because it's staring us in the face from Mark chapter 16. When you open your Bibles to Mark 16 and you look at verses 9 through 20, you will see... If you're using an updated version, these verses are in brackets. And the marginal notes indicate that these verses do not appear in earlier manuscripts. What do we do with this? I can tell you what skeptics will do with it. They will tell you that you should not believe in the Bible. Your Bible is corrupted. It's not trustworthy. So I, for one, as a pastor am unwilling to sweep this under the rug. (laughs) It's not my responsibility to avoid something just because it makes us feel uncomfortable or because it's difficult to be understood. It is my responsibility to teach the whole counsel of God. So we're going to look at this, even some of these finer details that we seldom encounter or think about in Scripture. And having said that, I don't want anybody here to leave confused or hurt because you're going to overreact to something that is said. I can't read minds. And so if you have a question or concern, you owe it to me and you owe it to yourself to bring that up, okay? All right? Just so we understand that. So here's the point of this unique study. This study demonstrates the unique reliability of Scripture. This study demonstrates Scripture's unique reliability, and we're going to see that by using Mark's conclusion as a case study. Our study will follow two phases first we're going to examine how the scriptures came down to us in the first place and that will lay a foundation for what it is we're going to look at in mark's gospel then we're going to investigate mark's original ending all right so are you ready let's first ask how did the scriptures come down to us and let's answer this question and explain how the Scriptures came down to us by addressing four popular challenges to the Bible. First of all, challenge number one. The Bible was written by men. The Bible was written by men. Men wrote the Bible. Yes. It wasn't aliens. It certainly was men. But God is still the source behind what these men wrote. Peter said, in 2 Peter 1.20, Know this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Christians have always believed from the beginning that Scripture came to men from the mind of God. God used each writer's personality and style. We've seen the personality and style of Mark in his gospel. But he use that personality and style to record precisely what he intended? Without error, all Scripture proceeds from the mouth of God. Paul said all Scripture is inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16. That means all Scripture is God-breathed. He was saying Scripture is not simply, it's not like a, one of the biblical authors simply got an inspiration, got a feeling. He's saying what they got was the very breath of God. That's why written scriptures in the Bible are referred to as the Word of God, such as Hebrews 4.12 uh, 4, or First Peter one twenty three. So we have this inerrant, infallible God as the inerrant, infallible source of the inerrant, infallible scriptures. Men wrote the Bible, yes, as God gave them the words. But by recognizing God gave the words to man, a second challenge arises, challenge number two, some will point out, but we don't have the original autographs. Right, we don't. Thousands of years later, surprise, we don't have in our possession a single original autograph of the scriptures, only copies of them. And while some might see this as a reason to doubt the reliability of the Bible, God has faithfully preserved his word in the vast abundance of manuscripts available to us. Now you can go to Washington, D.C. today and if you visit the National Archives Museum, you can see there a copy of the original, the original Constitution of the United States. And I want you just to imagine, say, tragically that some fire overtook the National Archives Museum and somehow this original autograph of the Constitution was destroyed, would that mean that we would no longer know what the Constitution originally said? Of course not. There are plenty of copies of this original autograph of the Constitution that we know very clearly what it says. Even though we no longer have the original standard, we can still discern what the original message was. Well, that's a similar situation that we have when we come to the Bible. We have no longer the original autographs, yes, but to date we have over 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. That's an astounding 2.6 million pages of biblical text. Add to this the manuscripts in Latin, Coptic, Syriac, Armenian, other ancient languages, which number in the tens of thousands. And then add to that all the citations of the church fathers that alone could reconstruct the entire New Testament over and over again. This is astounding. And in addition to the number of preserved manuscripts, there's also the antiquity and the variety of these manuscripts. Next to the Bible, the best supported document from antiquity we have are the writings of Homer. But even then, our earliest copy of Homer dates 400 years after Homer wrote it. Well, hardly skeptics give any attention to that. But our first fragment of John's Gospel comes to within only decades of when John wrote that gospel at the end of the first century. That's amazing. God has marvelously preserved his word. But some will claim things like, challenge number three, the Bible was changed. The Bible was changed, often it goes like this. The Bible was changed in the fourth century by Emperor Constantine. They think it's plausible that the emperor changed the Bible. Now, there are many reasons this is absurd. For one thing, there's no mention anywhere of anything like this ever happening in the record of history. And uh, you have to consider that only a decade before, under Emperor Diocletian, Christians were being tortured for refusing to surrender their scriptures. Now, does someone think it's plausible that Christians everywhere, all over, just as a church universal, are going to surrender their scriptures to some politician, let him change the Bible, and say nothing about it? I mean, there is no record of anything like that happening. That's just absurd. Absurd. Not to mention the fact that the the New Testament was copied into so many ancient languages, we have to realize, and it was spread across three continents, which proves that it were impossible for any single person, or even culture for that matter, or even said denomination, to simply change it. The New Testament is by far the best attested ancient writing in terms of its sheer number of documents, the time span between the earliest documents we have and the events themselves that they describe and the variety of the documents available. No ancient manuscript even comes close to the availability and integrity of Scripture. And I could give you quotes from non-believing scholars that have to concede that. Only people with a serious agenda or else who are plain ignorant could ever claim something like Constantine changed the Bible. Sure, we don't have the original autographs, but God has faithfully preserved his word in the thousands of manuscript copies that have come down to us. Now at this point, someone will bring up a fourth challenge. Challenge number four. But these thousands of surviving manuscripts, they contain thousands of variants. And that's correct. Among the thousands of surviving manuscripts, there are thousands of variants. Variants are places where these manuscripts we have differ from one another. And we can count them. And get this there are more variants found in all our new testament uh, thousands of new testament manuscripts than there are words in the new testament itself so i want you to feel the weight of this challenge there's a lot of variants we're talking about but if we were to leave it at that that would be very very misleading As one apologist explains, it's not the number, but the nature of the variants that really matters. It's not the quantity of the differences between manuscripts, but the quality of those differences that really matters. For instance, up to 70% of all these thousands of variants are spelling errors. That doesn't present any problem to biblical scholars. We can tell what the issue was. Somebody made, a copyist made a spelling error and that has no bearing upon the meaning of the text anyway. Now, there are some variants that do impact significantly the meaning of the text, but they are easily discernible. Let me give you a modern example, or more so recent example. Ever heard of the Wicked Bible? Printed in 1631, it was meant to be a reprint of the King James Version, but the printers accidentally left out one very important word. In Exodus 20, verse 14, instead of saying, Thou shalt not commit adultery, the text read, Thou shalt commit adultery. They omitted one single word. And for this single omission, this Bible was infamously dubbed the Wicked Bible. And I share that with you because when it comes to ancient manuscripts, and we're comparing these thousands of manuscripts... Nearly all of the variants that do impact the meaning of the text are especially obvious. You can obviously tell from the context itself, or if not, from comparing with thousands of other manuscripts, where the error lies. And so it's rather simple to reconstruct what the original text said. Yes, thousands of variants exist, but to be clear, less than a small fraction of 1% of textual variance actually raises any significant question. So that New Testament scholar A.T. Robertson explained, the real concern lies with a thousandth part of the entire text. No doctrine of the Christian faith stands or falls on any textual variant, including the one we're about to examine this morning. The fact there are copyist errors in the ancient biblical manuscripts, doesn't prove God has somehow failed to preserve his word. The fact that these errors exist shows us how God has preserved his word. God did not preserve his word to you by some miracle, it has come to us down through time by the blood and the sweat and the labors and tears of his saints. But God has providentially preserved his word. So while we trust in a sovereign God, let's realize this morning that we have now been committed the responsibility of studying and preserving and passing on this same word that was committed to us. Hey, there are lots of people that don't have the word of God in their native language. And it is committed to our generation to translate God's word and pass it on to them. Thank God we have his word preserved for us. To this point, the preservation of scripture has been so successful that we don't need to fear any variant, including Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. So we've asked, how did the scriptures come down to us? And hopefully answering that question has given us a foundation for what it is we're going to look at now. This most challenging variant in all the Bible. And so with the rest of our time, we're going to ask this question, what about Mark's original ending? yeah, what about it? Please turn to Mark 16 if you're not there already and look at your English translation. Assuming you have a modern version, you're going to notice there are brackets again placed around verses 9 through 20, and the marginal notes tell us why. We're not certain. We're not certain this text was original to this gospel. And this is likely the most significant and most difficult of all variants in the Bible. Did you hear that? Maybe that scares you. But, beloved, I hope you're encouraged. Uh, Let that encourage you. Let that motivate you this morning. Because if we can explain the most significant and difficult of variants in this modern copy of the English translation of the Bible we possess, then everything else is child's play. So let's check it out. And last week I gave you a a spoiler alert when I mentioned that Mark concluded his gospel abruptly with verse 8. So you know where I stand on this. You know what I believe. No surprises here. And by the way, if you disagree with me, if you believe that verses 9 through 20 were original to Mark's gospel, then that's fine. Uh, This is one of the most difficult variants to examine but I think we'll also see there's, there's no need to be intimidated or embarrassed by these verses. I do want you to see two lines of evidence for Mark's abrupt ending. And this evidence explains why there's a strong consensus among both Christian and non-Christian scholars. I mean, it's, it's virtually, there's a, there's a consensus all across the board that almost certainly, Mark almost certainly ended his gospel with verse 8. How do we know that? First, the external evidence favors Mark's abrupt ending. And when we talk of external evidence, we're talking about evidence external to the text itself. So we're going to look more into the text. Okay, hang on. But this is evidence external to the text itself. And to be fair, there's a lot of external evidence supporting this longer ending. Actually, the vast majority of Greek manuscripts that are currently surviving and also many other ancient versions of the New Testament contain verses 9 through 20. And we know early Christian writers were aware of these verses. For instance, Irenaeus writing in the second century, near the end of the second century, cites from verse 19 as being found at the end of Mark's gospel. This is one reason why these verses are still included in our English Bible. But there's also strong evidence, strong external evidence for the abrupt ending. And it's actually stronger, much stronger evidence that Mark ends his gospel with verse 8. For one thing, the earliest and best Greek manuscripts and a number of other earlier manuscripts in other languages end with verse 8. And, get this, not a few manuscripts that actually contain the longer ending will include a scribal note, sort of their own way of bracketing verses 9 through 20, and they will say these verses are not found in earlier copies. The scribes want you to know there's something about this text that's uncertain and this is confirmed to us by the fact that two prominent scholars writing in the 4th century, Eusebius from the east, Jerome from the west, these were both excellent Greek scholars. They were both in a position to have access to many manuscripts commissioned to come up with translation of the Bible. They were exploring vast quantities of manuscripts and they both tell us the same thing. They both tell us that in their time, the vast majority of Greek manuscripts lacked the longer ending. Mark abruptly ended in verse 8. And this is why almost every Christian scholar today favors the external evidence for the abrupt ending over that of the longer ending. So I need you to, to think with me here. I'm going to kind of put all this external evidence together for us. But I want you to track with me. In the earliest centuries then, we know that the majority of manuscripts, most Greek manuscripts, ended abruptly with verse 8. At some point, as early as the 2nd century, some scribes began offering alternative endings. We also know that. We have some of them. We have two of them listed in our modern translation of the Gospel of Mark. If you look down after, if you're using the NASB, or depending on your version, if you look down after verse 20, you will see there in italics, in another set of brackets, one of these alternative endings that has appeared in some manuscripts. We, we call this the shorter ending. You see it there? It reads, And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions, and after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Now, no one doubts that this shorter ending, that's found in a few spurious places in late in time, is actually authentic, or everybody knows it's inauthentic. But there are at least a couple other alternative endings in addition to this shorter ending in your Bible and verses 9 through 20. There were multiple endings circulating in early times for Mark's gospel. And you have to ask, why is that? My point is the very fact that there are other endings offered for Mark's gospel is strong proof that the abrupt ending was original. Okay? Follow with me here. This is because if the longer ending had been original, there would have been no need to offer all these alternative endings. But the longer ending wasn't original. The fact that a variety of endings exist should tell us there was some uneasiness about this most peculiar way Mark abruptly, unexpectedly, ends. Look at verses 7 and 8. The angel says, Go, tell his disciples, and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's it. That's it. You know what a cliffhanger is? (laughs) Maybe you watched a, a movie or something, or read a book, right? And you're in the most Suspenseful moment. It just ends. It leaves you hanging. And that's sort of like what Mark does. In the most suspenseful moment of the gospel, we hear Jesus is risen. Whew. Story ends. It leaves us in suspense. And apparently someone was uneasy with Mark's abruptness. And, and, and this person was apparently familiar with the other three gospels. I mean, scribes were very familiar with all of the new testament and they were familiar with the fact that all three other gospels do record Jesus post resurrection appearance to his disciples so this someone may have never intended it's possible again whoever came up with a longer ending never even attended that it would be considered part of mark's original text but perhaps more of a scribal postscript or point of commentary whatever the case as more and more manuscripts are produced this longer ending was copied Began to be circulated, and scribes, we find scribes in history more so in later times, they begin admitting, including this this longer portion in their copies, and admitting in the margins that we're not sure about these verses. They don't appear in the early manuscripts. But despite being uncertain about the longer ending, many just decide it's better to include them just in case. That's the natural default. And so, in their own way, they bracket these verses, these 12 verses, instead of just simply omitting them. Do you know that this is why these 12 verses remain in your English copy today? Nobody wants to take it out. It's there. There's one word. Tradition. Tradition. And, frankly, there's nothing in this tradition that contradicts our faith. Verses 9 through 20 draw on details from elsewhere in the Bible, you can find all of it from there's the Gospels to the book of Acts. And so we don't have to be intimidated by them, but the, the question is not, is this true? <laughs> the question is, is this the inspired word of God? That's what we're concerned about. That's what I'm concerned about. Um, we don't know who first added verses 9 through 20, but we know why they added them, we know where they got their material from, and we know how it is that these verses eventually came to be included. We can account for that and how they are included eventually in all these later manuscripts that we have that are surviving. So the abrupt ending, do you feel the force, the weight of the external evidence? The abrupt ending in verse 8 can account for the longer ending and all the variety of other endings that have been offered. But the longer ending cannot account for the abrupt ending, let alone all the other variety of alternative endings. That's important. In addition to this external evidence, the internal evidence also favors Mark's abrupt ending. Now, the internal evidence is that which describes what is found within the text itself. And get this, it is all in favor of the abrupt ending. Ending. As one commentator put it, the suspicion thrown on these verses, 9 through 20, by the external evidence is strongly confirmed by the internal evidence. And that's because of this. First of all, the character of the longer ending is inconsistent with the rest of Mark's gospel. Let's begin reading verses 9 through 20. Verse 9. Now, after he had risen on the first day of the week, he appeared, first appeared to Mary Magdalene from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who he had seen seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who believe has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Now, for sake of time, i got to keep this basic, but there is so much I could say here. Um... For one thing, without getting into all the Greek here, and I think if this is where if you know the original language, you are extremely helped in comparing some of the the, the oddities of of these verses. But for one thing the the change from verse eight to nine is very awkward it 's very unnatural we 're expecting because of the the conjunction that 's used initially we 're expecting some kind of a smooth transition, and then it 's a total change in topic. Um, we also have Mary Magdalene mentioned here. And the writer feels, for some reason, compelled to introduce her to us as the one from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. Well, Mark has just mentioned three times Mary Magdalene. He's never said this about it. I don't. I think that's, that's interesting. That's worth noting. And what, what I would want you to realize, it's not like any single word Mark uses or word he doesn't use. It's not any single sentence structure. It's all a corroborative matter of evidence. I mean, you've got to consider there are multiple uncharacteristic word choices. Things that when you study everything that's come before verse 9 in this chapter, we, we get a sense of Mark's style. We get a sense of words he uses in what situation. Sometimes, it, here, there are, there's multiple word choices. Mark makes that just, it puzzles us. Uh, there's different grammatical style. There's different sentence structure. Several things unique to Mark and... And then there's also sudden theological terms and themes that are nowhere else hinted at in Mark's gospel. These things, we could understand why they're here and how they came about easily if somebody's adding this. I'm just saying this. For sake of time, I I just have to say the ending, verses 9 through 20, is uncharacteristic of everything that's come before. This longer ending reads remarkably different, but the abrupt ending is only consistent with Mark's gospel. And here's the awesome thing about that. Uh, The primary reason why people doubt Mark's abrupt ending, why has anyone ever doubted that Mark ended his gospel with verse 8? Why don't we just leave it at that? Well, the primary reason, the, the reason people offer is that it's just so odd. They find it so strange that Mark would end with this cliffhanger. But we need to carefully examine the text. And when we do, we realize in context this ending fits with Mark's overall theme and purpose. Mark's purpose for his gospel was never to give us the final word on Jesus Christ. In chapter 1 and verse 1, he introduces his gospel to us as the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark ends the way he does because the story isn't over. He wants you to know it's still being written. What I've given you is just the beginning. In fact... What are you going to do with the story? If you will embrace Christ and you will share his gospel, that story is continuing through you. Also, Mark's purpose for ending here was simply to show us Jesus is the Son of God. He's made that plain throughout his testimony. In Mark chapter 15, verse 39, we finally arrive at the climax where Jesus' identity is declared by his own Roman executioner. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. Chapter 1, verse 1, that's the point. Chapter 15, verse 39, that's the point. Everything after that, it's really a prologue. I mean, it's, it's the icing on the cake. But that's it. That's the purpose of Mark's gospel. Jesus is the Son of God. I think that's been plain to us. So if you've ever met someone who was King James only, King KJV only, they will tell you that some scribes intentionally removed Mark's longer ending in the effort to deny the resurrection and deity of Jesus. see, so That's why it was, it was taken out. And there are, there's just so much I could say to that, but why on earth would a scribe who wanted to deny or undermine the resurrection and deity of Jesus simply remove verses 9 through 20? Did he forget about verses 1 through 8? <laughs> there's so much wrong with that thinking, but basically that kind of... Conspiracy theory carries no more weight than the Da Vinci Code. I'm not trying to insult anybody, but I'm just saying it's absolutely baseless. People can say anything, but they can't back it up. And I want you to see the support for this original abrupt ending because this is God's most powerful way of concluding this gospel. He's leaving us with the question, as we saw last week, how will you respond? Jesus is risen. Go and tell it. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with this amazing message of the amazing Christ? No, Mark didn't say anything else after verse 8. Because Mark didn't need to say anything else after verse 8. His point was clear. If we had time, I'd show you how the abrupt ending fits uh, with all of Mark's literary style. He likes abrupt endings. I will mention this. Uh, it, it fits, this abrupt ending fits with his running theme on amazement and fear. Amazement and fear in response to Christ. Amazement and fear for Mark are the inevitable response that he leaves us with about this person, Jesus, the Son of God. Chapter 1, verse 27. After Jesus cast out a demon, we're told the people were all amazed. Chapter 1, verse 22. They were amazed at Jesus' teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. The way he taught them with such authority. Chapter 2, verse 12. We saw Jesus, when he heals the paralytic Everyone's amazed. And they were glorifying God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Well, of course not. Chapter 4, verse 41, after Jesus commanded the wind and the waves, the twelve were very much afraid, and they said, who is this? Who is this guy? That's a great question. Mark wants you to know, it's the Son of God. Chapter 5, verse 15, when the crowd came to Jesus and saw how he had healed the man possessed by many demons they became frightened they said get out of here we don't know what to do with you we don't have a category for understanding somebody like this chapter 5 verse 33 the woman who is sick for so long with this issue of blood she's healed immediately by touching jesus garment and fearing she comes trembling and falls down before him Chapter 5 and verse 42, Jesus raised a dead girl to life. And what are we told? Immediately, those watching were completely astounded. No kidding. Chapter 6, verse 2, teaching in the synagogue, the many listeners listening to Jesus were astonished, saying, where did this man get get these things and this wisdom that's given to him and such miracles such as these performed by his hands? Chapter 6, verse 50, his disciples all saw him walking on water and they were terrified. Verse 51, Jesus gets in the boat the wind stops and you think, oh, now they're going to be calmed down. Uh Uh-uh. We're told they were utterly astonished. They didn't know what to make of this. They didn't know what to do with the fact that one who is human in the flesh was God the Son. Chapter 7, verse 37, the people were utterly astonished, saying, he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Chapter 10, verse 24, the disciples were amazed at Jesus' words. Chapter 10, verse 32, as Jesus' disciples see him so determined to go to Jerusalem after he said he's going to be rejected and killed there, they're amazed. Chapter 11, verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes were afraid of Jesus for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And now we come to chapter 16, verse 5. Here's the woman Sunday morning, very early, they enter the tomb. And we are told they were amazed. They were amazed. And following on everything Mark has told us to this point, of how amazing Jesus is and how mortals can only inevitably respond in fear. It's no wonder Mark now ends with verse 8 saying, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Do you feel it? Do you see it? Mark is showing you this amazing message about the amazing Son of God. And it is an amazing ending, because it leaves us in amazement. What else could you say? He is risen. Go and tell it. That's amazing. And that's it. That's it. That's the end of Mark. And it's an awesome ending. And you don't need to add to it. Don't add to it. There's certainly no need to. We've wrestled with some things that are difficult to understand. Some of you may have questions about some of the things we discussed. And that's great. I want to encourage that. I... uh, I want to encourage you too. Jesus said, Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will, will be open to you. If you have questions, ask. Don't just simply sulk in doubt. But please exercise some maturity and caution and, and don't overreact to this. I mean, you can misunderstand me, right? I can misspeak. But God can't fail you. And His Word will eternally, forever endure. You can trust Him. In this study, we've demonstrated the unique reliability of Scripture. There is nothing anywhere ever like the Bible. No, the Bible didn't fall from the sky. It came from the mind of God to the mind of man and was recorded without error in the original autographs, in the original manuscripts. But as these manuscripts were copied and copied and copied, We've been reminded this morning that various human errors found their way, whether intentional or unintentional, into some of these copies. These copies that have come down to us. The good news is this less than a small fraction of 1% of variants actually concerns anything significant. And within that small fraction of 1%, no doctrine of the faith stands or falls on any variant. That's important. The message is undeniably clear. And we've just explored the most difficult and daunting of variants. How was it? (laughs) Did you survive? This is difficult. This is a difficult variant. But it's really not that difficult for anyone studying what we have, studying the variants, to discern Mark's original ending. This is the reason, again, virtually all Christian and non-Christian scholars are agreed. Mark ended with verse 8. Maybe you don't like that. Maybe you disagree with that. That's fine. Again, that's not going to change your view of Christ or the resurrection. But I can tell you that the fact that this is plain to everyone who looks into it should tell us something. We don't have to doubt it. We don't have to doubt God's word. We can thank God that he has providentially preserved his word so that whatever skeptics may say, the Bible is the most well-attested work of history. And even the bracketed text that we've examined this morning is only evidence of the fact that no text is preserved like the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy words, long preserved for our walk in this world. Now, Father, we concede that the greatest trouble we have is not discerning what you said. It's not even understanding what you meant but it's actually doing what you said. And in this amazing gospel, you have called us to go and tell others of this Jesus, the Son of God that you sent and has risen and has triumphed for us. I pray that you would help us to declare this victory to others. I pray, Father, if there be somebody who is struggling with doubt in your word, would you help them to ask their questions? I pray that you would give them stability. We know there's so much uncertainty in this world. We need hope. We need something reliable. And we thank you for the reliable words of our God. Words that you have preserved for us. Thank you for Mark's incredible gospel. Thank you for this entire study that we've been able to do together as a church. And Father, we thank you for this incredible way that this amazing gospel ends. I pray that we would now leave with this message ringing in our ears and deep in our hearts.